our text, Psalm 128.1, our topic, the fear of God, a biblical analysis. I've always wanted to study this. I, you know, you read the Bible and you sing the Psalms and you see the fear of God all over the place. It's in Genesis. It's in the five books of Moses. It's throughout the prophets. It's in the New Testament. And uh, so it's very important. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. In this psalm, the unnamed author connects blessedness and happiness to a fear of Yahweh. As we study this passage, we first need to see what it to consider what it means to fear God. What does it mean to fear God? This is an important topic because the fear of God is a chief characteristic of the true believer. We see that especially in the book of Psalms. Moreover, in the word it is connected to real knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, salvation from sin. Psalm 85.9, obedience. Genesis 20, 11, Psalm 2, 11, 5, 7, 15, 4, and 128, 1, and prosperity or covenant blessings. Psalm 31, 13, 34, 7, 64, 128, 1, etc. <clears throat> now, just a word about this psalm, just a very brief word. Because this psalm speaks of the great blessings of a God, uh, a God fearer's marriage and family, some scholars believe that it was sung or recited at weddings. Luther calls it a wedding song for Christians, while Matthew Henry says this is a psalm for families. So if you go on to read the psalm, it talks about the blessings of a godly family. In order to arrive at a biblical understanding at this rich expression, we will first give a general definition of the phrase. Then we'll flesh it out and look at how it is used throughout Scripture. The fear of the Lord and its equivalent phrases, fear God, is one of the most important and frequent expressions found throughout the Bible. And uh, the song we sang today had it. It's found all over the Bible. I was going to do a footnote or discuss all the places it occurs, and there's so many examples of it that I, I basically decided not to do that. There are just so many. There's a couple in Genesis. There's, a, there's a, some sprinkled throughout the, the five books of Moses. And then when you get to the Psalter, it's in the historical books. When you get to the Psalter, it's all over the place. <clears throat> It is rich in meaning and can have slightly different emphasis depending on the context in which it is found. It is frequently used as a designation term for true believers who honor and respect God and thus follow his covenant law. Do you remember the thief on the cross and Christ is there and the one guy's the, the one thief is converted, the other Christ, the other thief is mocking Christ and blaspheming? And the thief says to the other thief, do you not fear God? How dare you? In this context, it is often set in opposition to pagans and the unconverted. <clears throat> and we'll look at that in a minute. The wicked are those who do not know God. Do not fear God. And if you watch these atheists on YouTube and these secular humanists, they blaspheme all the time. And of course, comics today are filthy and they blaspheme God all the time. They don't believe in God. They don't fear God. Well, the expression does contain elements of real fear. It is a reverential fear or awe that is based on a true knowledge of who God really is and what he has done in our behalf. So it's a reverential fear, a reverential awe. Therefore, this reverential awe in the believer is never divorced from love, confidence, and the peace of salvation. You know, perfect love casts out fear and all these, you know, we don't have to fear going to hell. We don't have to fear judgment and all these things. 
yet we still fear God, and it's found in the New Testament many times. The fear, dread, and terror of those under the curse of the law is cast out by the blood of Christ and replaced with a reverential awe mingled with love and covenant loyalty. We are saved by Jesus in order to fear God. Psalm 130, verse 4. <clears throat> if, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, Adonai, referring to Jesus, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you should be feared. We're saved to fear God. Yahweh is feared not simply because he is the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. I was going to ask my wife to look all this up, but how many, how many galaxies are there? Trillions of galaxies? Billions upon billions of galaxies? There's billions upon billions of stars just in our one galaxy? God created all that? To him it's but a speck of dust? <clears throat> but also because he is kind, merciful, loving, and compassionate. He is our loving Father who pitied us and saved us. So the sure evidence of a sound believer and truly blessed man is the true fear of God, keeping him in the awe and reverent obedience of God. An analogy, my professor used this analogy way back at seminary. If you ever had new, uh, you have a puppy, a new puppy. I, it's not a very good. I don't like. I use analogies much because they're never fully accurate. But he comes home and his puppy there is looking at him in total love, because you know to, to the puppy he's mom, he's everything. But the puppy's also trembling because of the superiority of of the owner. Have you ever seen that a puppy? He's happy, he's, he's loving, but he's also trembling. Now, as we look at how this expression is used in Scripture, first a footnote, I want here's, here's a couple of definitions here. These are very helpful. Robert Nisbet, quote, There is a fear of the Lord which hath, both ter hath terror in it and not blessedness. The apprehension with, with which a warring rebel regards his triumphant and offended sovereign or the feelings of a fraudulent bankrupt towards a stern creditor or a conscience-stricken criminal to a righteous judge are frequently types of men's feelings in regard to God. This evidently cannot be the fear which the blessed of this psalm feel. Nor can theirs, on the other hand, be the tormenting fear of self-reproach. Their fear is that which the believer's revelations, uh, which the believed, uh, which the believed revelations given of him in the Word produce. It is the fear which a child feels toward an honored parent, a fear to offend. It is that which they who have been rescued from destruction feel to the benefactor who nobly and at the uh, vastest sacrifice interposed for their safety, a fear to act unworthily of his kindness. <clears throat> it is that which fills the breast of a pardoned and grateful rebel in the presence of a venerated sovereign, at whose throne he is permitted to stand in honor, a fear lest he should ever forget his goodness and give him cause to regret it. Such is the fear of the Christian now, a fear which reverence for majesty, gratitude for mercies, dread of displeasure, desire of approval, and longing for the fellowship of heaven inspire. The fear of angels and the blessed Son, the fear not of sorrow but of love, which shrinks with instinctive recoil from doing um, aught that would tend to grieve or from denying aught that would tend to honor. Religion is the grand and only wisdom. And since the beginning, the middle, and the end of it is the fear of the Lord. Blessed is every man that is swayed by it. <clears throat> I 
End of quote. So it is a fear joined with trust, faith, confidence, reverence, love, and thankfulness. Psalm 33, 18 to 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And here's another, here's a Puritan here. <clears throat> Nisbet's 1800s, here's, here's the 1600s. Charles Bridges. But what is the fear of the Lord? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God submits himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. God's wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that there naturally arises an earnest desire to please him. And also, in view of the danger of falling short because of his own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear, so that I may not sin against thee. That's from Psalm 119.11. This enters into every thought and every activity of life. <clears throat> the most mature pupil of God's school wants to be more completely molded by his teaching. The godly parent trains up his family under the word's influence. The Christian scholar honors it at the beginning. The most important part of all is knowledge. He sees that it gives meaning and purpose to learning and saves him from all the treacherous temptations that accompany knowledge. In other words, end of quote. In other words, if you're a scholar, you're not going to you're not going to even consider for one moment anything that contradicts the word of God. In John Gill uh, this was published in 1810, but I think it's 1700s, says that the true fear of God is, which includes every grace and the whole of religious worship, a conscious, a conscious, a conscientious regard to the ways of God, such as avoid evil and do good because of the fear of God. So just a footnote. Like I said, if you ask most Christians, what is the fear of God? Most don't, don't know the answer. And it's, it's, it's a rich answer. It's, it's a bit of a difficult answer. As you look at how this expression is used in Scripture, its full meaning and purpose will come into a more full and precise focus. The first time we encounter this expression is in the book of Genesis. So it, it comes in Revelation fully formed, already in use. In 2011, Abraham explains why he deceived Abimelech He's the prince at Gerar in southern Canaan, or you could call him a king, but he's, he's like a warlord. <coughs> Regarding Sarah, see uh, Genesis 20, verse 2. Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. So here the expression, the first time it's used, comes forth full of its meaning already. Early, with Abraham. The patriarch's use assumes that he believed that the people of that area did not know, trust, or follow the true God, so they would be an immoral pagan people. That's the assumption. They don't fear God. I better pretend she's my sister, although she was his half-sister. Otherwise, I'm a dead duck. For Abraham, no fear of God implies no reliable ethical standard or behavior. No fear of God assumes that there is also no piety or holiness. Therefore, such a people would have no respect for the rights or safety of outsiders. Now, we could say that today of Oakland, San Francisco, parts of San Francisco, Los Angeles. They just closed a, what, an In-N-Out burger or something in Oakland? You couldn't, it's, the crime was so bad, you couldn't park your car, walk in and grab a hamburger and walk out without your car being robbed, broken into. That's how bad the crime is. There's no fear of God in the ghetto. That's why there's crime. It's not racism. It's not because of a lack of opportunity. It's because there's no fear of God. Immorality. In fact, pagan princes or kings in the ancient world were essentially local warlords. If they were grossly immoral and tyrannical, it was not uncommon in such a situation to simply murder 
the leader of such an entourage and then incorporate that group into one's own harem and family or tribe. And Abraham knew that. Very dangerous traveling back then. Very dangerous. So given this example, we should not be surprised that unbelievers or the wicked are described in Psalm 36.1 as those who have no fear of God before their eyes. So you see these criminals, they shoot people in the face, and they, they don't even need to kill them, but they want to rob them and they kill them. They have no fear of God. In the second example, in, uh, by the way, in, in Genesis, there's two examples. Well, I think there's three, uh, which is Genesis 42, 18. Joseph identifies himself as honest and trustworthy. And how does he identify himself? I fear God. You can trust what I say. Why? I fear God. I fear Yahweh. I fear the true and living God. What I say is true. Now, the second and main use of the fear of God, of course, is a command to the covenant people because of who Yahweh is. <clears throat> In the restatement of the moral law, right before Israel is about to enter the promised land, we read this. It's a divine imperative. This is Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 15. Deuteronomy means the second statement of the law. It's repeated to the generation. The parents are all died in the wilderness. The new generation is about to enter in. So Moses repeats the covenant law with some new alterations for the, for the promised land. The moral law doesn't change, but the application can change <clears throat> in certain contexts. After Joshua had led Israel in conquest throughout the promised land, and it's, uh, oh, here it is. This is Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 15. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the God of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. And that's a very solemn and <laughs> potent warning when they literally watched all their parents die of unbelief in the wilderness and their bodies rot and they died in the wilderness, they didn't get to go to the promised land. Why did God wait 40 years? He waited for them all to die. For they didn't have faith. After Joshua had led Israel in conquest throughout the promised land in his farewell address, he says this, Now therefore fear the Lord, Serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 14. And then just, I'm going to throw in a passage from the New Testament, which is wonderful. And this is toward the end of the book of Hebrews, toward his Paul's, uh, well, if, if you believe it's Paul, his conclusion uh, Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And there you have reverence coupled with godly fear. Why? And I'll discuss this in a minute. For our God is a consuming fire. So to say there's no elements of true fear in there is simply wrong. That's a threat. Remember, Hebrews written to, there was a problem of Jews apostatizing and going back to Judaism. When they became Christians, their family members rejected them, their businesses were ruined, and there was a temptation to deny Christ and go back to Judaism, to Pharisaical Judaism. So the book of Hebrews contains some very strong threats, warnings. We are required to serve God with fear and rejoice with trembling, Psalm 2.11. Worship Yahweh with fear, Psalm 5, 7. And honor those who fear God, Psalm 15, 4. Those who rule, whether politically or ecclesiastically, are to rule in the fear of God, 2 Samuel 23, 3. For God's people, their salvation is an additional reason why the fear of Yahweh is commanded in 2 Kings 17, 36. We are to pray to God to unite our hearts to fear the Lord. Psalm 86, 11. And like Solomon, we should pray that the covenant people will fear God as well. 1 Kings 8, 40. 2 Chronicles 19, 7. And that's something you pray for. God, I want to fear you. 
Believers are also to pray that all the nations will come to fear the Lord. 1 Kings 8.43 and 2 Chronicles 6.33. You find that directly in Solomon's prayer when he's dedicating the temple. Now it's noteworthy and interesting that when Jacob deals with Laban, you know the story, Laban cons him, tricks him. He doesn't want to marry Leah, he just wants Rachel and he cons him. He's a corrupt man and there's evidence that he did not worship the true God. He appeals to the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. Genesis 31, 42, very interesting. The fear of Isaac, that's his father. <clears throat> when he made a covenant of peace between the two households, he swore by the fear of his father Isaac, Genesis 31, 53. From the earliest of times, God was known as the one feared by his people. So Jacob uses the term fear in a religious devotional sense that is almost synonymous with the true God himself. Interesting. And once you understand how important the fear of God is, when you start reading your Bibles, you're going to see it all over the place. It's, it's all over. In order to understand the riches of the expression, the fear of God, we must look at the reasons for it given in Scripture. Number one. A reverential fear rises in the regenerate heart due to God's majestic holiness and glory. We fear God because he, he's worthy of fear. That's who God is. Yahweh is infinitely pure, holy, and good, and is transcendent. He is above and separate from creation, and he has total power and control over the creation which, although very large and awesome from our perspective, is finite and but a speck of dust in God's sight. The heavens declare the glory of God, we're told in Romans. The universe, of course the universe is finite, but it's very big. And the, the amount of galaxies and stars is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Now, atheists, who are absolute fools, and the Bible tells us they're fools, say that the universe came from nothing. It created itself. And then they tell us we're irrational for believing that God created it. But that's for another, another day. <clears throat> Earthly things can be set apart, consecrated, or sanctified by God. For example, the Holy Sabbath, a holy nation, the holy temple. Only God can declare something to be holy. But Yahweh, the true and living God, alone is holy in himself. Purity or moral perfection is contained in the idea of the, the word holy, but holiness also denotes transcendence, awesomeness, majesty, glory. Holiness is not simply one attribute among others, but applies to all that God is and does. Holy love, holy grace, holy knowledge. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why, did, why didn't God just simply overlook sin? Why did Jesus have to go through that suffering? Why did Jesus have to obey the law in exhaustive detail? Because he had to save his elect, his people, in a manner that honored his own holiness, his own righteousness. That's, why, that's what separates biblical Christianity from Islam and the Unitarian cults and from Judaism. God can't overlook sin. The holiness of God is why Yahweh's special presence causes fear, trembling, and dread among a people conscious of their sins. And the giving of the law. Exodus 19, where God's special presence descended upon the mountain. And there was lightning and there was giant clouds and thunder and, and earthquakes and everything. There was dread and terror as the law was spoken. And then you know the story. Moses, you talk to God. Why don't you talk to God, find out what he wants, and then you can come and talk to us. 
Boundaries were set around the base of the mountain to protect the people from God's infinite holiness. Exodus 19.24. And I didn't put in here, I probably should have, but the way the temple's designed, you got an outer court. Then you have an inner court. Then the, there's a place for the priest to go in. Then you have, in, in the very center, you have the Holy of Holies where nobody can enter in, lest they die, except the priest once a year. And the Jews, according to people like Eidersheim and others, uh, after the uh, captivity in Babylon, uh, when the high priest would go in there, they would tie a rope around his leg, and they would have it go out, out to the outer, outer place of the temple for fear he might die because of the holiness of God. After Jacob saw Yahweh in a dream at Bethel, when he awoke, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I know it. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? Genesis 28, 16-17. And then let me just read the definition by Burkhoff, because I think for a single-volume theology, his definition is uh, pretty much unsurpassed. Quote, The scriptural idea of the holiness of God is twofold. In its original sense, it denotes that he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. <clears throat> so understood the holiness of God as one of his transcendent dental attributes and is sometimes spoken of as his central and supreme perfection. It does not seem proper to speak of one attribute of God as being more central and fundamental than another. But if this were permissible, the scriptural emphasis on the holiness of God would seem to justify its selection. It is quite evident, however, that holiness in the sense, the sense of the word is not merely a moral attribute, which can be coordinate with the others, such as love, grace, and mercy, but is rather something that is coextensive with and applicable to everything that can be predicated of God. He is holy in everything that reveals him, in his goodness and grace, as well as his justice and wrath. It may be called the majesty holiness of God, and is referred to in such passages as Exodus 15, 11, 1 Samuel 2, 2, Isaiah 57, 15, Hosea 11, 9, etc. But the holiness of God also has a specifically ethical aspect in Scripture. And it is with this aspect of it that we are more directly concerned in this connection. The ethical idea of the divine holiness may not be disassociated from the idea of God's majesty holiness. The former developed out of the latter. The fundamental idea of the ethical holiness of God is also that of separation. But in this case, it is a separation from moral evil or sin. In virtue of his holiness, God can have no communion with sin. Job 34.10, Habakkuk 1.13. Used in the sense the word holiness points to God's majestic purity or ethical majesty. But the idea of ethical holiness is not merely negative, that is separation from sin, but also has a positive content, namely that of moral excellence or ethical perfection. <clears throat> if man reacts to God's majestic holiness with a feeling of utter insignificance and awe, his reaction to the ethical holiness reveals its sense in a sense of impurity, a consciousness of sin. Isaiah 6, 5. We're going to, uh, we're going to look at that briefly, but the, these instances where the prophet is transferred to the throne, throne room of God, they, they have this utter sense of their own sinfulness. Otto also recognizes this element in the holiness of God, though he stresses the other and says of the response in it, mere awe, Mere need of shelter from the tremendum has here been elevated to the feeling that man in his profaneness is not worthy to stand in the presence of the Holy One, and that his entire personal unworthiness might even defile the holiness itself. And then returning back to uh, Burkhoff, this ethical holiness of God may be defined as that perfection of God in virtue of which he eternally wills and maintains his own moral excellence, abhors sin, and demands purity in his moral creatures. End of quote. And I just want you to know, if you read your Bibles carefully, you'll notice that the holiness of God, especially this, this uh, ethical aspect, 
this moral aspect, is emphasized far, far more in Scripture than the love of God. Now, the love of God is true. God is love. There's no question about it. And God sent his son into the world because of his love, his love of the elect. But let us not forget that the way God saved man and the, the law, the moral law, which reflects his nature and character, is all because of his holiness. As finite creatures, the awesome majestic holiness of God should awaken in us a sense of creaturely consciousness and a sense of absolute dependence, loyalty, servitude. As finite sinful creatures, there also comes a sense of, uh, of self-abasement, coupled with a sense of unapproachability. It is only through Jesus' perfect redemption that the unapproachable becomes approachable and fellowship is restored. See, when atheists talk about Christianity, they don't know what they're... They have absolutely... And I watch these, you know, Hawkins and Dawkins or whatever these guys. These guys are so ignorant of Scripture. It's mind-boggling. They don't understand. The problem is not a problem of evil. Evil is very easy to explain. Man had a, Adam had a free will and Adam sinned. And men are born sinners. That's very easy to, uh, easy to explain. Why do people do terrible things? Because of sin. They're, it's in their nature. The, the, the thing that's uh, more hard to explain is why would God decide to save such a rotten people? I, John Gershner wrote, I think he wrote a pamphlet called the, It's Not the Problem of Evil, he called it The Problem of God's Goodness or something. It's amazing. But anyway... And then here's the passage I really want to talk about for a minute. The holiness of God is conveyed beautifully in Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. Let me read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. <coughs> Here's Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal from which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. And the Hebrew word there means atoned for. Amazing passage. Now, we know from Scripture, of course, that God is a spiritual being. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't have a physical form. His essence is invisible to physical sight. Yet Yahweh condescends to our limitations, and he manifests himself to those in heaven and the prophets who go into the God's throne room uh, in their dream or vision. His infinite glory and majesty is adapted to our finite capabilities while conveying the truth about who he really is. Okay, I mean, if somebody could really behold the essence of God, they would immediately die. I mean, God is just so incredible. So he has to adapt himself. Isaiah was enabled by God to see him in a form that his capacity could endure and could understand. God's holy majesty and glory is so great and awesome that the mightiest of angels must shield their faces from his radiant glory. That's the symbolism there. The most powerful of angels who are around the throne of God have to cover their face. The throne high and lifted up with the enormous robe that fills the heavenly temple indicates absolute power and authority. God is creator. God is sustainer. He's the judge of all men. He's the ruler of all men. He's in charge. His voice shakes the doors in their post. 
indicating that the whole building is shaking. So the scene is awesome and terrifying. This is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, whose glory, power, and purity fills the whole earth, his creation. This is the God with whom we have to do. Of all the divine attributes, none is emphasized and celebrated more than God's holiness. Our attention is directed to the Lord, who alone has all power and authority, who alone can create and destroy, whose rule and judgment over men and nations is directed by his holiness. He is holy. He is thrice holy. He is infinitely holy, originally, perfectly, and eternally so. And if you don't understand God's holiness, you won't understand the cross. People who don't believe in salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, have no idea how evil sin is in God's sight. The response of Isaiah, a true and holy prophet of God, is like the other prophets who beheld such a sight. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. When God proclaims judgment on earth in the book of Revelation, what are they, what are they called? They're, they're woes. Daniel turns his face to the ground when he saw God and became speechless. His strength and breath left him. Daniel 10, 15 and 17. Daniel basically sounds like he fainted. When the prophet saw the Lord in his holiness, he proclaimed a woe of judgment upon himself. Woe is me. He understood that he was a sinner and he called down a judgment for his guilt and filthiness down upon his own head. In that brief second, any self-righteousness that Isaiah had was obliterated. That's what the holiness of God does. In the presence of infinite holiness, his record of sin and heart of impurity was exposed as the blackest of coal on the whitest of snow. In the presence of God, our best works, our achievements in sanctification, our good works and righteousness are immediately seen as corrupt, filthy rags. And that's stated in both the Old Testament, our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight, and by Paul in Philippians chapter 3. The brightness of God's glory reveals them as dim and dark as the brightness of the sun in all its strength dims a candle. As a faithful prophet of God who rejected idolatry and he kept God's covenant in the land of idolaters and wicked apostates, he could be seen as a beautiful saint. He's wonderful. What a saint he is. He's not worshiping Baal. He's not worshiping Ashtoreth. He's not committing adultery. What a saint. But when compared to infinite holiness and purity, he came undone and admitted his guilt at once. His consciousness was led to absolute self-abasement. Isaiah confessed his sin and the Lord removed his sin so he could be sent to preach repentance to the nation. Ministers of God, prophets, preachers, they're all rotten sinners. Especially when compared to the holiness of God. The scriptures teach that the true people of God fear the Lord. They do so solely because of divine grace and mercy that regenerates hearts and opens blind eyes. But we must not lose hold of the fact that God in himself has an awesome, terrible majesty that merits such fear. <coughs> and that's one of the main problems of modern evangelicalism. God is presented as a cosmic Santa Claus who exists to meet your needs, to make you have self-esteem and feel better about yourself. God is presented not as the holy God of Scripture, but as a spare tire, as a cosmic Santa Claus. He's there so you can have brighter teeth and a bigger house and a nicer car. And you can have self-esteem and feel how wonderful you are. That's not, that's not the message of the Bible. Now, obviously, if you're covenantally faithful and you obey biblical principles, you will prosper. Generally, unless, unless it's a time of persecution or something, you will prosper. We serve, and this is um, Nehemiah 
the great, the mighty, an awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Job 37, 22 to 24. With God is awesome majesty. As to the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear him. Revelation 1, 17. This is, this is the ascended Christ. When Josh saw the ascended Christ in all his glory, he fell at his feet as a dead man. And when they remember the three disciples, when Christ appeared to them with Moses and Elijah, and they just got a tiny glimpse of his glory, and they were they were in total fear. <laughs> it's not good that we're here. In Exodus fifteen eleven, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? So there's just a little bit about the why. But we're going to continue with the reasons for this fear. There are a number of reasons why the holiness of God and the necessity of fearing him is emphasized in Scripture. And the first reason is rather obvious. It's related to how a holy God will respond against sin. His holiness results in wrath and judgment against violations of his character. And this argument is presented by the author of Hebrews, who says that Yahweh must be served with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28. So the message of, yeah, you can be a carnal Christian, go out and sin all you want. God's a God of love. He's not going to do anything. Just relax. That's not the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is repent. Don't sin. Be covenantly faithful. Our God is a consuming fire. This warning... Of course, it's an allusion from Deuteronomy 4.24, where Moses warned the people against covenant breaking by committing idolatry. The context of Cor 4.23. Now, God is compared to a devouring fire in that a fierce, blazing, white-hot fire consumes all combustible matter instantly. Instantly. Here's an example of a white-hot, blazing fire. In Hiroshima, the nuclear weapon, you know, it blew up. I forget, it was like 200, a couple hundred yards off the ground when it blew up. The people that were near it, that were out sitting on the steps or riding a bike, were instantly vaporized and all that was left of them was a shadow on the sidewalk or a shadow on the steps. God will judge rebels against his holiness with a judgment of fiery terror that will consume and destroy them. On the day of judgment, all non-Christians who die in their sins are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Revelation 20, 14 to 15. <clears throat> the focus is on the holiness and purity of God's nature, which will judge and consume unbelieving and impenitent sinners. So when I see these atheists on there, you know, God is not good. God, the God of the Bible is disgusting and perverted and immoral. Because, you know, these, these atheists, these secular humanists who are ignorant fools, some are very good communicators. Some are very clever. But if you analyze their arguments logically, they're idiots. The use of Deuteronomy 4.24 is appropriate in Hebrews. And that a major purpose of this epistle is to warn professing Christian Jews of the dire consequences of abandoning the new covenant purchased and sealed with the precious blood of Christ. And you see that throughout Hebrews. Oh, you want to abandon Jesus? You want to, you want to regard the cross of Christ as worthless and trample it underfoot to go back to your Jewish relatives who don't believe in Christ, who blaspheme? You want to do that? Well, I want you to know what's going to happen to you. There are consequences of apostasy. The man throwing a spear in the jungles of South America who never ever heard the gospel, his judgment will be far, far less than somebody who knew the gospel and rejected it so they could live in sin and follow their own lusts. To do so is just as wicked as the apostasy of the Jews who abandoned Yahweh for Canaanite idolatry. 
Apostasy, which always is connected to idolatry, can only lead to one thing. Hebrews 10, 27. A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That's what the Bible says. And if you don't believe in Christ, and if you're not bowing the knee to Christ and Yahweh, the true God and the Holy Spirit, the triune God of Scripture, then you're worshiping something else. You're an idolater. And why do people reject Christ? They love their sin. They want human autonomy and ethics. They want to commit adultery. They want to fornicate. They want to do whatever they want. Get drunk. Take drugs. Whatever. The second reason is faith in the true God and covenant uh, is faith in the true God and covenant loyalty. Genuine faith in covenant loyalty is the only way to extra extirpate human autonomy from ethics, religion, and politics. Note that in the Old Testament, the focus on fearing the Lord is often associated with the first and second commandments. And we'll end with this. Because a knowledge and faith in the true God and how to approach him in worship is foundational to the obedience of the whole covenant law. And notice this next time you read through the historical books. People go, oh, those Jews in the Old Testament were so stupid. They, they worshipped sticks and stones and idols made out of wood and stone and gold and everything. Well, people who are secular humanists today are atheists who reject God. They're just as idolatrous as the people in the Old Testament. They may not have a statue, but they worship their material things. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 4.24 refers to God as a consuming fire, a jealous God. The expression a jealous God comes from Exodus 20, verse 5, which speaks of the Lord's instituted worship. Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh is compared in Scripture to a marriage relationship. See Isaiah 45, 5 and Jeremiah 3, 14, where that's explicit. And this analogy, of course, continues in the New Testament, where the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the husband. Ephesians 5, 25 to 32, the parable of the wedding feast in the Gospels, and of course, Revelation, where the church comes as a bride out of heaven, prepared for, adorned for Christ, for the wedding supper of the Lamb. This focus is logical in that one's whole thinking, outlook, and behavior is determined by one's view of God and world and life view. People act out what they believe. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now R.J. Rushton has correctly pointed out that one's ultimate source of law reveals one's own God. Okay, if you say that the Supreme Court can simply make it up, or Joe Biden can simply make it up, then that's your God. Is where a Christian says, no, we have to, all our laws have to be based directly on what God says in the scriptures. But this observation could just as easily be turned around to say that one's view of God or ultimate reality will in turn affect every aspect of one's thinking and worldview. The first commandment teaches us that we must only believe and serve the one true living God, Yahweh. And the Lord tells us who he is by special revelation of the Bible. We are not permitted to define God for ourselves, but must learn who he is. the only true God is through Scripture. The second commandment requires that we only worship and serve the true God in the way that the Lord himself has instituted in his word. So there is to be no human autonomy in worship and by logical implication uh, in salvation or ethics as well. It is for these reasons that reverence toward God is associated with a strict obedience to his instituted worship and law. I think we'll end there, because I have quite, I have more on this than I thought. You say, well, why do these young atheist comedians blaspheme Christ and God? Why do these atheists repeatedly blaspheme God? Now, one of their tactics is, is really quite clever, but it's, it's, it's a lie. Whenever they're refuting Christianity, they lump it in with Islam and Judaism. Islam and Judaism is easily disproven. 
biblical Christianity cannot be disproven. And that's why they, it's like we're debating something and I keep changing the subject because I can't win the debate, so I have to deceive you by switching to a different topic. Islam's evil. It's easy to prove that it's evil. Now, I know they appeal to slavery in the Bible, but if, if they don't understand what biblical slavery in the Bible really is, or they wouldn't use it as an example, because slavery in the Bible is a blessed thing. I know you may say, well, what do you mean? Slavery in the Bible is for people, you see those drug addicts in San Francisco, and they're all half dead, walking around like zombies, pooping on the streets and shooting up. Those are the kind of people that need indentured servitude for a period of time to get off the drugs, learn how to do a job, and get back to work. And then they're restored to society as a productive person. That's biblical slavery. It has nothing to do with what you see in the South. They're two completely different things. That's another misrepresentation. Yet, does the Bible allow whipping slaves and so forth? Yes, it does. It disciplinary procedures. But biblical slavery has nothing to do with chattel slavery at all. Biblical slavery, if applied correctly, done by godly people, is a wonderful thing. It's the solution to getting rid of prisons. It's the solution to the homeless problem. It's the solution to drug addicts. For modern society, has no solution. Their solution is, well, give them money. Give them clean needles. Give them some toilet paper so when they poop on the street, they can wipe themselves. That's the solution of the secular humanist. The Bible has biblical solutions for everything. But the problem is these atheists who try to refute the Bible don't know what they're talking about. They don't know the Bible. And their arguments are absolutely stupid if you know the Bible. And we will end there because I have, I have more on worship. Worship is something where it's really the fear of God. <coughs> Concentrated worship is something where the fear of God has to be extremely central. Because in concentrated worship, you're in the special presence of God in a unique way, especially corporate worship. So we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. You are holy. And Lord, we ask you, give us a holy fear of you and your dear Son, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Cause us to obey your covenant. When we're tempted to sin, remind us of that fear. Help us, Lord, to fear you in all things, place you first in everything, so that our world and life view, our ethics, our sanctification, everything is based on who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.